The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, Episode 73. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Make yourself. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. Uh, and because of that, we talk about more than just the the shows and the stories. Uh, sometimes we talk about some of the things surrounding it or about Star Trek. Uh, and that's what we're discussing today. We're discussing the Deep Space Nine documentary that was recently released called What We Left Behind. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well. Folks, if you uh, like the secrets of Star Trek, please remember to go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash starquestmedia, and like it there. Retweet the episodes on Twitter where we're at SQPN and leave us comments. That all helps to juice the algorithms and get the show out in front of more people who might be interested in listening. So this is, uh, as I said, it's a little different than our usual fare. We're talking about this documentary that came out in May 2019. Uh, called What We Left Behind, which is an obvious play on the name of the last episode of Deep Space Nine, which was called What You Leave Behind. So, mm. And it came out, I think it's time for the 20th anniversary of the end of the show. Is that correct, of mm-hmm. the series? Um, yeah, and there was also another purpose behind releasing it, because it includes all this new footage that's digitally remastered, and they're right, hoping to show Paramount that there's enough interest in Deep Space Nine to get them to do a digital remastering release of, of, of this series. like yeah. they have for the original series. And yeah. if, if they do the remastering like it was done for this episode, this uh, uh, documentary, I hope it happens because it was beautiful. I mean, it was absolutely well done. Yeah, the, the biggest one was the, the battle, the Dominion War battle, uh, which was yep. the, the biggest special effects thing of the original series, which they recreated for this. Um, we'll get but into... even. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, so everybody was here. All of the recur- so, so you're regu- saying don't start on the space battle. Yeah, exactly. Which is yeah. exactly what they say in the documentary. Uh, it included <laughs> all of the regular and recurring cast except for Avery Brooks, who we have a few recordings of him from previous interviews, but not, he didn't sit for interviews for this documentary. We'll talk about that in a yeah. second. Um, and it also included included all of the writers from the original series. Gathered well, not, together. Not, not all, but the ma- some of the ma- most of the major ones. Right, right. The, the right. most of the major writers, the producers, and from the writing room, getting together to discuss an outline for a hypothetical. Keep in mind, it's hypothetical. There's no, it's never going to be made. So that that's good. Yeah, <laughs> a hypothetical eighth season premiere that would be set to take place twenty years after the end of the series. So we'll we'll talk about that right. too. Um. So th- one of the one of the downsides, by the way, of possibly remastering it is uh did you notice how bad all of the makeup looked uh the the, the ferengi makeup <laughs> you could tell it was like that that vinyl fake it wasn't skin um so that would be i don't know how you handle that in remastering for hd stuff that was shot in sd but uh, that, that's just something interesting so the documentary uh was the idea for the documentary came around 2012 uh, when Iris Stephen Bear, who was the showrunner for the original for Deep Space Nine, was approached during a Star Trek convention and asked to host a Deep Space Nine documentary, the William Shatner had just done three for the original series and, and you know of, of very in, in next gen and of various kinds, um, and he wasn't going to do any more. Uh, and Bear said, "If I do, I want to do something different, not just a bunch of talking head interviews," which they they clearly did. Um, yeah, they crowdfunded the. Uh, the, the, some of the financing of this. I'm sure there was other financing, but they crowdfunded. Uh, crowdfunding is not always just about the money, but it's often about getting buzz and making viral. Uh, I will yep. just have a full disclaimer. I was a backer 
I got a, a at the level I forget how much I I gave, but it was at the level of where I got the Blu-ray um, disc mm-hmm. in the digital. So uh, I I was not at the level where my name was in the credits at the end. I I looked because I didn't remember, but and, and now yeah, <laughs> it wasn't. So too bad. Uh, they were worried at, for, at first that they wouldn't raise the $150,000 goal in the course of 30 days. They they hit that goal in, in a day, and they eventually raised uh, something like 650000 Wow. All right, so no Avery Brooks. Uh, what did you guys think of that, the fact that he didn't sit for this? Any? He's sort of the Christopher Eccleston of Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, I was the lead character, and now I don't want that much to do with you. Right. Yeah, so I, I looked up online. Some people claim that he's become less mentally stable over the years, which I think is one of those things they say about actors who don't want to talk about old roles. That people want to hmm. be like, "Oh, that's because he's gone crazy." Well, and he's he's a very eccentric character to begin yeah. with. I mean, he, you just see it in his in, in the interviews they show. Yeah. He's very uh, different. Yeah, yeah, and he doesn't use in talking about issues that are contemporary issues like you know race relations and stuff he he hasn't his own way of talking about them he doesn't use the standard terminology he doesn't say african-american he doesn't say black he says brown consistently he says Mm -hmm. brown when everyone all the other actors whether they're regardless of their ethnic heritage including other brown actors are saying black right yeah, so what a, in the documentary itself, they kind of address it by saying, you know, just imagine you're talking to a jazz musician. That's how he talks, you know, and that, that kind of makes sense given what you hear. Uh, he doesn't speak in complete sentences and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, his his du- directing advice to actors would be things like glide, glide, <laughs> yeah, or exactly, slalom, yeah. Um, so some people say he's like you said, Jimmy. He doesn't like what Star Trek how it defined him in his career like both things that Shatner and Patrick Stewart actually once felt and less so now obviously um while others say you know like Father Corey you were saying he's always been just sort of unpredictable and unconventional so uh that's that so the the ep- the, the documentary opens up with um musical numbers uh sort of lounge numbers the f- uh, opening one is just Max Grodenschick who played Ro- Rom um mm-hmm. singing a song that has relevance to Deep yeah. Space Nine. Instead of instead of I left my heart in San Francisco, it's I left my quark in Captain Cisco. Yes. <laughs> and so it's just a filk of 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 famous, you know, uh nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties rat pack pop numbers. And I thought that was interesting. I thought it was effective. I didn't know Max Grudinchik could sing. Certainly yes. not that well. I was I was expecting if anybody this should be Jimmy Darren who played Vic Fontaine. Mm-hmm. Because he is really a, He's a, a real singer, singer from that era. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Max uh, did a great job with it. I thought that was interesting. I also thought, the, and this kind of pertains to the structure of this and how what Ira Stephen Bear wanted to do is different than a typical talking head documentary. We start with this opening musical number, and it's by one of the actors who's not known as a singer. And then mm-hmm. we cut to a space battle, and then we have Andy Robinson, who plays Garrick, introdu- interrupt the space battle yes, and give a speech about memory and how it's unreliable and what you're about to see is partly true, but maybe not, and that's the best we can do as humans. And you have this really made a thing going on throughout this mm-hmm. where they're, they're structuring when we have the writers you know, doing this episode breakdown throughout the course of this as we shift it's not like we get to see okay this is the writing segment they split it up in acts the same right. way and they they have just an enormous amount of creativity in how yeah. they put this together it's very non-linear it's very meta yep. even during the credits and we and not only do we have a post credit moment but even during the credits they're doing stuff that is you know not the norm so this really right. i thought showcased the creativity of the people who produced right. deep space nine and their willingness to break out of the box although, yeah. although i will say this this did show uh and we'll talk about some of the the, the parts of it but iris Stephen bear might be a great writer he's not a good actor <laughs> yes yeah. yeah none of the behind the scenes people are all that great of actors but uh his purple beard is interesting Yes, he yeah. is. He is a he is an interesting character all on his own. Uh, that's for sure. 
in you know it's interesting they, there is a lot of fourth wall breaking which i it, it, a lot of documentaries can be kind of dry and a little boring I, let's just be honest and this is not a dry boring documentary no. this has lots of very interesting um it's got all all the stuff that you expect but it's got more and so that i think i think they've been they were successful in that in that respect that with this documentary yeah. So one of the one of the unconventional things they do is they start with and they they repeat this throughout. They start with the stars of the of the show, the cast, reading criticism of the show, uh, contemporary criticism yes. of the show by fans who hated it. And none of the good feedback. It's all no. negative. All negative. Uh, well, when there is good feedback from fans that they have where they've recorded them, I think at mm-hmm. conventions and a few people doing stand ups where they've specifically grabbed them and said, can you record this with us? Um, but yes, right. all of the the stuff that they read is sort of like a, a critical tweets that, what is it, uh, on one of the late night shows does this, where they have mm-hmm. people read tweets that are critical of them, uh, which is it's, can, right. can be amusing. Uh, well, it's interesting, it's interesting to see that the, the uh, actor's response to a lot of this feedback, and some of it, you know, um, um, the guy Ar- I just Armin? blanked on his name. Armin Shimmerman? Yeah, he. I mean, he was. You could see he was still hurt. Yes. By it, you know, twenty some years later, he was still hurt by this response. <laughs> yeah. It's just like okay. <laughs> so, and then they get into talking about how you know, Deep Space Nine. They always knew it was the middle child. It, you know, between Next Gen and Voyager, it was a companion to TNG. It was something that was sort of continuing along next to Voyager. They're stuck mm-hmm. on a space station. We talked a lot about this in our overview of deep space nine but you know right. they're not going to new planet every week it has a darker tone not everyone in the on the not all the characters get along and so it was different um and and that's a very interesting uh idea but this was very new and people didn't like it some people um yeah whereas today it has a much different people are used to this they and it has a much bigger following and we'll, well talk a little about some of the reasons why you know and it, it's it's it is interesting because it was so different from any other Star Trek. And I think, as we talked about, if you go back and listen to our, I went and did listen to our, our conversation on DS9, episode 17, that's one of the reasons why we liked it. It was a little bit different, you know, and there are yeah. things like serialized television, which we'll talk about a little bit here, and things like that, that they did that was just a little bit out of the mold of traditional Star Trek. And that made some of us make it our favorite Star Trek. Yeah. I was interested listening to them reading the the critical letters and, you know, a number of them dealt with, oh, you've broken Star Trek, you've violated Gene Roddenberry's rules. And, you know, you hear the same criticism now about uh, the first season of Discovery. <laughs> yes. And I had sort of the same reaction with Discovery that I did with Deep Space Nine is, I don't care. Gene Roddenberry's rules were terrible. They yeah. they incredibly limit the drama that you can mm-hmm. you can produce effectively, and he was inconsistent with them. He really introduced them in the next generation, not in the original Star Trek. Right, right. There was a tonal shift that he tried to bring to the Star Trek universe, and he sort of forced a card on a lot of the fandom of saying, "Okay, this is how Star Trek has always worked." No, it's not. It has not been this utopia ideal thing that we got in the next generation. And that is dramatically limiting for storytelling. These were these rules were terrible from a writer's perspective. Mm. I was glad they were gone on, or weakened yeah. at least on Deep yeah. Space Nine. But I got to thinking after watching the documentary that maybe for some people they want Star Trek to be a kind of utopian release, and that's mm-hmm. what attracts them to the series is not the the quality of the depth of character and cleverness of the writing and the storytelling. And that's not what's attracting them. Maybe for some people, they want a utopian escapist fantasy. They want to imagine a world where there, there is a utopia. That's what's really important to them is to to create this image of a, of a utopian world. Right. And, and I, I understand that. I want Star Trek to be a positive thing overall, although I don't mind exploring dark corners of the Star Trek universe or dark times in the Star Trek universe. Also, a little less flatteringly, though, I think some of them may want that as a form of virtue signaling, because one of the things that happens is in in Gene Roddenberry, next-gen, rule-based Star Trek, 
is we get repeated morality lessons of we just need to be more inclusive and thus show our moral superiority to others. Right. And and that may be what's attracting some segments of fandom too. Right. I find it very interesting how the people who we could we could fundamentally disagree with so much of the outlook and even the the how they approach the the subject of the show uh, with the people who make it and yet we could love the product that they <laughs> that eventually comes yeah. out yeah like some of the so seeing a documentary like this shows you the mindset behind some of this and what they what they were attempting to do and i look at it going yeah i fundamentally have a different viewpoint on the world than you do and yet i love the product that you created because yeah. it it isn't what you think it is or it doesn't have to be what you thought you were doing. I thought that was fascinating. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, they're good writers, and I can appreciate good writing even if it's from someone who has a different worldview than me. Right, which exactly. often, <laughs> when it comes to TV and movies, most of them do. Let's talk about, they, they had uh, a lot of people that they interviewed, from uh, some interesting people, not just the cast and crew, but they had the former head of Paramount Television, who was head of Paramount TV at the time, interviewed which that was an interesting choice, you know. Yeah. That, that'd be the one, you know. The suit would be the one choice you'd think they would leave out, but they, it's like, and they, I think they purposely said, "No, we're going to include him. We want to see this side of the story as well." And, and this is something that I've encountered before with Deep Space Nine behind the scenes material. There were a series of books. I I forget whether it was called like the Next Gen Encyclopedia, the Deep Space Nine Encyclopedia, the Voyager Encyclopedia. But there was a set of right. books that came out in the nineties about the different series is. And I read the Deep Space Nine one, and it goes through episode by episode, and they talk to the writers, and the writers are saying, this is how we came up with this story, this is how it changed over time, and yeah, this one was not one of our best, and here's why. And they were very open and honest about their process. And then I, I thought, what a great book. I want to read the Voyager and Next Gen ones. Uh-uh episode summaries none of that and in the same way in this documentary they go to some they ask some of the less comfortable questions about the process and you know Mm -hmm. why did you have a problem with us doing serialized fiction and things like that well that's what is so interesting with this documentary is it it's got that feel of deep space nine where it's not afraid to go to the darker places and examine things uh, so what? So what's interesting here is what they 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 kind of confront in some ways the the hard questions. They bring the the hard questions to this this former suit, and one of them is Avery Brooks, the choice of Avery Brooks as captain, a a black uh, African American captain in Star Trek mm-hmm. uh, for the you know early nineties, mid nineties. That 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 was a a bold choice. Not long after the Rodney King uh, riots in L.A. and and that sort of stuff, and they they brought up how that was interesting. He previously Avery Brooks had been on a TV show uh, Spencer for Hire, which was about a Boston private eye, and his yep. sidekick, his his buddy, his friend was this uh, character named Hawk. I loved Hawk, yep. by the way. That I, before he was <laughs> Captain Cisco, he was awesome as Hawk, and I was and I was like, Hawk is going to be Captain, a Starfleet Captain. I'm in. Uh, when I found yep. about it. So, uh, but when they, they he showed up, they had him instead. Hawk had a bald head and a goatee, like Cisco does in later seasons, which but is how Avery sh- Brooks likes to be, right? And when exactly. they had him show up, they had him. He had hair on his head, no beard, and the the they confront the former the, this former chairman of Paramount, and they he said, uh, "Oh, well, we had to differentiate him from Hawk. We didn't want him to be too street," which is interesting. He he kind of fumbled for those words. He wanted to make sure. He wasn't going to say something offensive, uh, yeah, but the, and that's but, a good impulse. Yeah, yeah. It, so uh, it was an interesting uh, idea that they wanted the Avery Brooks, but they wanted they they kind of pulled back a little, and they didn't want to go too far with him. But later on in the series, they would let him kind of go. They would let him kind of be more of who he wanted to be as as Captain and portray. Uh, right. So very interesting. We'll talk a little bit more about some aspects of Cisco's character, the, the way they came up when we talk about Jake and some of the other things. But uh, but I thought it was interesting. There was a point where DS Nine got the beard, yeah. yes, you got the and beard. and lost the hair. <laughs> lost the hair. I, I was I on this point. I am sympathetic to the Paramount guy wanting to say we didn't want him to be too street. 
Yeah. Because that's not really how, and this is a, a place where I understand that for two reasons. One, you don't want people reading your show in light of a completely unrelated show. You want this to feel like Star Trek for people, not Spencer for Hire. Right. Right. So I understand that. I also understand that, and this is one where I will kind of go with Gene Roddenberry's quote-unquote rules a little bit. This is the 24th century Earth, If um, even if other places have seamy undersides and rape gangs and stuff, Earth doesn't. So Earth doesn't have street in the same way it did in Spencer mm. for Hire. And so I can understand wanting to say, okay, this Avery Brooks is here, but he's not Hawk. And right. Right. It can make sense to signalize that visually, but you can also signalize it other ways in right, terms of right. just how the character is written. And frankly, I think he looks a lot better with his preferred look of bald mm -hmm. and with the goatee. Mm -hmm. Terry Farrell, who plays Jadzia Dax in one book of Star Trek interviews I was reading, I, she characterized the way he starts on the show as looking like a black Ken doll. And right. I think that's very accurate. And right. it's, it is yeah. not the best look for him. Yeah. And then uh, Penny Gerald Johnson, who plays Cassidy Yates, uh, she talks at one point about how when they shave the head, she's just like, I just wanted to touch it all the time. <laughs> she, like, yeah. They show a yeah. scene where, where Cassidy touches it. Uh, I think the first time she sees it. So uh, so that I, I thought that was an interesting inclusion of that Paramount executive uh, in, to sort of confront some of these, you know, difficult questions. Not. Not stumpers, not not uh, inappropriate, but sort of in interesting questions. So let's talk about this point. Um, kind of bring it all together. This hypothetical eighth season premiere, instead of dragging right. it out over the over the document like they did, they get these guys together, and we have guys in the room like uh, Ronald D. Moore, who went mm -hmm. on to make Battlestar Galactica and other things, Outlander, I think, yep. and some other stuff. Um, Rene Echevarria, who you might know contemporaneously from the Amazon Prime series. Um, Carnival Row. He's the executive right. producer behind that, and other stuff. And Hans Bemler and some of the other guys. I don't Robert remember Hewitt all Wolf. Robert Hewitt Wolf. Yep. And then, of course, Era Demon yeah. Bear himself. Yep. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting that the 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 writers list of this of DS Nine is really kind of a who's who of people mm -hmm. who are still involved in the TV world today. They're still they're still producing science fiction. You know, Rene Echevarria. What his big project he's known for is the forty four hundred. Right. He's oh, the right. one who really spearheaded that one, among other things. Also, Elementary is produced by, yep. by one of these guys. Right, yep. right. So it's, yeah, they, these guys are, have gone on to great success. They, this is, they're not one and dones, not one hit wonders. Uh, so it's very interesting getting them together in this room. And you know, when, when they're doing this, when they're breaking a story like this, as they point out, this is never the end product. This is just the first step. And, and you know, the, the final result would, would probably look very different would be related but be very different once all the yeah. polishing and writing had been right. done and notes had come in from other people in the studio and all that sort of stuff. But here's where they where, where they would start. It it would take place 20 years later this in you know, real time and it would begin with the death of Nog, which is Aaron Eisenberg was still alive when when mm -hmm. this uh was filmed, but uh it it, it, it it's very um I kind of find a little a little bit of emotion, a little bit. I mean, I, yeah. I'm not mm -hmm. I'm not connect you know emotionally connected to but like wow that's that's kind of sad uh, that that idea that nog dies right at the beginning my initial reaction was negative to killing mm -hmm. off nog especially right at the mm -hmm. beginning because when you have nog is a is an established beloved character and anytime you kill an established beloved character you need to build to that right you, you need to earn it you don't yeah. do it right off the bat. Well, especially since they, they took this established beloved character and, and put him to like the peak of his career as captain of the Defiant. Right, right. And you're like, yay, Nog is captain he of the Defiant. He made it. Oh. He succeeded, yeah. And it comes across but, as a shock tactic. We're just doing this to come out of the gate with a bang, literally, and shock the audience. Yeah. I, I, I did like that uh, little little scene where they're you know interviewing Aaron, and he goes, you don't kill the Nog and just storms off and everybody <laughs> yeah. in the back just starts clapping. Yeah, he's, he was obviously he's acting. <laughs> acting it, yeah. but it was yeah. just so funny. It was a clever, cleverly done scene. And so uh, because of that, the, 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 then we go two weeks earlier, which is, which is a, a gimmick I hate on TV. Like the oh, whole, I don't like, mind that. Oh, I hate I, It's just such it's, a I think it's just overused. Yeah. I just think it's overused as part of the problem. Yes, exactly. It, I think it, it has become a crutch for too many writers, but we'll, we'll go with it. 
So the crew is being called together by uh you know by Nog to back to Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine is now a religious shrine for the Bajorans. Bajor never became uh, a member of the Federation. Kira is now a Vedek, which is the equivalent of mm-hmm. is it is a it bishop. a bishop? A bishop, right? Yep. And apparently they've they've secretly converted the Jem Hadar to the Bajoran religion, and they're now Bajor's secret army. All right. Uh, Worf is about to become the Klingon Chancellor. Ezri is captain of a medical ship uh, and married to Bashir. And Bashir is now head of Section 31. Maybe. Uh, they don't establish that. They speculate that. Right, 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 right. right. I mean, all of this is sort of... Um, which could, up, be, up which could be an interesting plot line. I think that could be... That would be yeah. interesting if they would have done that. It's, I mean, it's interesting to see Bashir kind of go... Has gone in a dark direction as his character. That's an interesting move from the the starry-eyed uh, young doctor he was at the beginning. Um, they, they say that Section 31 feels that religion is too divisive and they want it gone from Earth. And so I'm not sure what that has to do with the destroying the wormhole and the prophets. No, they, 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 they said they removed it from Earth. It's gone okay. from Earth, and now they want to remove it from Bajor okay. so they can get Bajor to come into the Federation. Yeah, uh, the idea will be if you destroy the wormhole, then the prophets are gone, the Bajorans will give up their religion, and they'll become secular, and they'll want to join the Federation. I think this betrays a lack of understanding on the part of the writers of religious people. Right. Yeah, also, I appreciate their desire to take religion seriously And I admire the boldness of the writing choice of saying Mm -hmm. Section 31 may have been responsible for defaithing large chunks of Earth, and now they want to do something that sinister elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, I don't buy that there are no religious people on Earth. That's a Gene Roddenberry fantasy. Right. Cassidy Yates is a religious person. Right. Mm -hmm. Most people in the Star Trek universe may not be religious, but there are religious humans. Anything else is unrealistic. Having said that, you know, I appreciate what they're trying to do here and the boldness of the choice. Also, though, the logic is flawed because religion, I mean, this is the standard secular trope. Religion divides people. Religion unites people. That's where we get the word religion is from its uniting factor. And so the opposite Section 31 view would be to say, no, no, we need to convert all these people. That will unite them. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, that, Deep Space Nine has a reputation as being the, the, seri- the Star Trek series that took religion the most seriously. And they did. And I give them credit yeah. for that. But, as well as taking ec- ec- economics most seriously. But, you know, right. Hollywood writers, they don't really understand economics. They don't really understand religion, but at least they're trying. Right. 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 Um, it, so, um, I, I so I appreciate, and the fact is, the Section Thirty One's bad guys, right? It's the bad guys who are trying to destroy religion. So, right. they're not making up as if destroying the religion is a good thing. It's just, right. it's just what it is. Um, and so, Section Thirty One mis- maybe misunderstands religious people more so than the writers. So, I'll put it that way. So, the couple of elements, the other elements that are in this hypothetical uh, eighth season, there is a. Cisco and Cassidy's son that that she was pregnant at the end of the series his their son has now uh, been born 20 and he's a Starfleet officer but yeah it's kind of weird cuz he'd only be like 19 20 years old and already a Starfleet officer yeah he well he is the science officer on Deep Space 9 which is kind of a remote podunk assignment at this point yeah since the Dominion War is over and it's just a religious shrine so Unless he's enlisted, I mean, but he he hasn't had time to go to college and I know get a it is <laughs> it is unusual to have a nineteen year old science officer even here. His name, by the way, is Joseph Yates Cisco, right? Named after yep. uh, Cisco's dad, Joseph. Yeah. Yep. And one thing that they never touch base on in this is where is Cassidy Yates? You know, right. I, she should be in here somewhere, right? And probably they'd find her at her in at a later point. Yeah, they talk about some they got of the a characters. whole season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would assume she would go back to doing trading or whatever, and well, living on Bajor or something. They talk about because this is just meant to be the first episode of a twenty-four episode season. 
And they talk at one point about bringing in Odo to do this investigation of what killed Nog, but then they say, no, 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 we, we, we've got 24 episodes, we need to save some of this for that. Right, right. And that you, presumably right. some of these characters would be coming back. Yeah. Yeah. And then we also have Molly, uh, Chief O'Brien's daughter, who we did see as a small child on Deep Space Nine during the series. Uh, she's now a Starfleet officer, too, so that's a lot of fun that they would incorporate her as well. So. Uh, it's interesting. At the end, uh, Kira stands with the Starfleet uh, folks instead of with the Bajoran folks, and and so that's how the season would begin. The big thing we're building towards is the return of Cisco, which was yes. what was promised at the end of What You Leave Behind, and we get an intimation that he's manifested to Jake when Jake was taking a shower. <laughs> Right, and right. all yeah. of a sudden, we just get a, a momentary glimpse of Jake standing in the white void, indicating he's having a prophet vision. Right, and mm-hmm. uh, and then we have this with the tension that Section Thirty One has been stirring up. It's pitting the Bajorans against the Federation, and and we have incoming ships yeah. and the Klingons, and it's it's all coming to a head. And and the climax of the first episode at the forty, what would be the forty-four minute mark, is Cisco simultaneously returns everywhere at once. He's on Deep Space Nine. He's on the bridge mm-hmm. of the Klingon ships. He's in his office talking to Jake, saying, "I'm sorry." Wham! The end of the episode. And right. so, what happens next? Right. Yep. And that's and that's I I think somebody tried to uh, convince uh, Ira Bear to to do a. Um, graphic novel version of the eighth season hmm. but he he demurred he's, he refused so, that, hmm. so we'll never we'll never know it's up to us or some fan fiction to figure it out but uh it's interesting I, i'm not sure i want the 2019 version of deep space nine you know what i mean it, yeah with 2019 uh ideas and ways of telling stories and stuff i like deep space nine as deep space nine Mm-hmm. And, and, and there there already are Deep Space Nine novels that have dealt with things like Cisco's Return and so forth. Yes, which mm-hmm. have been very good, actually. I've, I've read some of them. There's too many for me to catch up. I've, I've, it's been too long uh, to, to, read, to read them all, but they've been right. very good. So then this is a, a discussion about the uniqueness of the, the set, of the, the Deep Space Nine set. It was massive. It was a practical set. The lighting was built in. The yep. lighting you see on the set is the lighting that they had. And the the set designers they loved it. It was like a playground that they were on that they could mm-hmm. build this set. And the ca- the actors talked about acting on the set, how it helped them to feel in place. So that was interesting because it was an immersive environment. It's not like there's a fourth wall that's not there, right? right. And that that's that's always the interesting thing to see is when you you watch some shows and you see the behind the scenes, and literally it looks like it's this big. Let's say Doctor Who it looks like you got this big console room, and it's really like this little tiny, you know, three walled thing that has <laughs> right. absolutely no space whatsoever. Right, you know, and things they, like they that. just move the, the walls around as they're shooting from different angles. Exactly. Um, we have a we have a segment where fans react to having had strong female characters in both Jedzia and Kira. This was my least favorite part of maybe my least favorite part of the documentary because yeah. it's like, okay, I don't care. That they're women. <laughs> right. I like Jadzia and Kira as people. They're nice, yeah. complexly written characters. That's what I like about them. So right. in, I have in my notes, Kira and Dax, they're women. It's like, thank you. I knew that. That's not what interests <laughs> yeah. me about them. Yes, I could, re- I could tell when I was uh, there. I did like that they talked about how Jadzia as a scientist inspired some young girls to want to, be, to become scientists and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like that sort of the, that they had good role models. Uh, but yeah, we don't have to spend yeah, a lot. But this of- is this is the this is the paint by numbers part of right. any Star Trek documentary. Right? Yes, yes. Uh, there's some discussion of the uh, makeup for the Klingons, Ferengi, the Cardassians, and Odo, and how onerous it was for them to put it on. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the part where O'Brien talks about how, like uh, the the uh, Colmini talks about uh, the, the how onerous it was for him to put on like pancake makeup on his. You know, it takes twenty minutes, for like five ten minutes. You know. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, and 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 um, Worf, um, uh, Michael Dorn, Michael Michael Dorn has to be in the chair for three hours every day. You know, yeah. and he just gets up like, "Oh, you jerk! <laughs> you get done so quickly." Uh, so yeah, very funny. Um, and uh, the story of uh, when Rene Aubergeois, who played Odo, 
at the end of one of the seasons just ripped the face off and threw it at Ira Bear. <laughs> and Ira still has it enshrined in his home in a display case. And it looks case. so creepy. <laughs> it does yeah. look creepy. <laughs> Uh, so Mark Alemo, who p- played Gul Dukat, um, he is here. He is so odd. <laughs> that is yeah, one he is. strange dude. Uh, he talks about how we never felt appreciated. I felt like this was yeah. not a put on for the for the documentary that he really was voicing his real opinion. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. I I got that too. Uh, that he really did not. He he really wanted some people from the show to come up and say, "Man, you were really nailing this part. You're doing really yeah. good work here." And that didn't happen. And Ira Burr talks about well, the way writers communicate, you're doing a really good job, is they bring you back and they make your part deeper, yes. which is what happened with him. I mean, Gold so, Cut is beloved by uh, you know beloved and hated you know yeah, uh, he, both sides he, of the coin by fans. Yeah, mm-hmm. he is he is a great villain. He is yes. he and he just gets more deep and more complex with time and he's an awesome villain. And and a lot of that's attributed to the way Mark Alemo played him. I mean, yeah. it's just well, absolutely. I think that and this I think it's a little weird, but you know who else really felt underappreciated and really want other people to affirm him and what he, and the work he did? Gold Ducat. <laughs> that's true <laughs> Maybe yeah, exactly. this is part of why he's so good at Gul Dukat that is a really <laughs> good point there's a yeah. good bit of Mark Alimo in Gul Dukat well also Gul Dukat had the hots for Kira the whole series and, and apparently so did Mark so Alimo did Mark- yes <laughs> yeah exactly. exactly that was so very awkward I love Nana they show Nana Visitor's reaction to that and she's like oh this is just so weird stop yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I, I think some of their interaction on screen was not acting. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but, exactly. By the way, if you uh, ever want to see Mark Alimo in another, and it's a small part, but it's an interesting part. He is in the 1970s television movie, two-part television movie, Helter Skelter. Oh. He plays he plays a police detective in that. And it's interesting to see Mark Alimo. Wow, this is Mark Alimo young and not in <laughs> Cardassian makeup. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that was, that was probably the, the interesting thing is to, you know, having known these characters for, you know, 20-some years, mm-hmm. to see the actors outside of the makeup and to see how much of what we attribute to the, the character is actually the actor. Right. You know, you're talking about, like, Max Grodencheck is, he's kind of an interesting-looking character to begin with and kind of, you know, interesting, mm-hmm. you know, facial features, whatever, that all come out in ROM. Right. And... You know, think with Mark Alimo, you know, some of the facial features and, the, you know, some of the, the ticks, if you will, of Goldicott come out, you know, from right. him personally. Right. Or Andrew Robinson. Yeah. The writers talk about how the romance between Odo and Kira was not their idea. It came from the performances mm. yeah. of Nana Visitor and Rene Aubergenois. Yes. Yep. The chemistry that, that they saw between the, the, the actors, the way they acted out the, what, they, what was written for them, like, oh. That's an interesting idea, and how it grows from that. It's a collaborative process. I do like that. Yeah. Uh, we talked about this uh, next thing uh, a lot in the uh, overview of the series, but where right. DS9 paved the way for serialized television. It's the roots of today's serialized shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, the studio at the time well, said okay. they were killing the series by serializing it. The, so the, there are a few things here. Uh, number one, serialized television has been around for a long time in the form of soap operas. That's yeah. really where serialized television got right. started. But in terms of primetime drama, yeah. Yeah. Babylon 5 really broke the mold, and Deep Space Nine quickly followed and did help popularize it, but I don't think we can fully credit Deep Space Nine with pioneering serialized television. And yeah. let's be clear, too, we're talking about serialized television on U.S. television. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because, of course... Doctor Who was serialized from the beginning, so right. well, in a sort, in a not sort, the same yeah. level, but still, it, you know, the episodes were serials, you yeah. know, a serial right. story. Yep, yep. Uh, one of the things that, that at the time is they felt like the, the the serialization, the way that the story arcs were killing it, but and that f- they were losing fans because showing it in syndication, fans couldn't necessarily see it, and they'd get lost, and they would stop watching, but. They talk about how today Deep Space Nine is more popular than ever, and part of it is because it, this is how people watch TV now. They, they mm-hmm. watch it in like binge watching. They watch it, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, the whole series at once, and so it's a different life for it. 
And and this is what I've always preferred. I've always preferred big stories that I can get into. And it's not like, okay, that was a fun 45 minutes or a fun 22 minutes and it's a self-contained story and it's done. I want big epics. And right. and that's also demanded by the premise of this show. That Because if it's set on a space station, you cannot go somewhere to a new planet every week and have a right. new self-contained story. It, that will right. not work. And even if you said, oh, well, we've got a wormhole right here, so we're going to have a new visitor every week, that's going to get boring really fast. Right. Yeah. This the, Setting a show in a single location and having it be a drama, not a sitcom, means you, and, and, and I mean, unless it's like a hospital where you have a regular rotation or a police station where you have a mm -hmm. regular rotation of cases and a good reason for that, then if it's a base, like right. this, a military base, yeah, you need a serialized story to properly exploit that premise, right? Right, and you know it's 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 interesting that and one thing they did bring up in this is that because of that, the secondary cast of characters became almost as important as the primary cast. Oh yeah, of course you had the primary cast, Cisco and Dax and all them, but then you had Lita and Lamar, and because Lamar started out literally as like a gunnery officer or something like Demar. that. Yeah, Demar, yeah, Demar, yeah, Demar, Demar, not yeah. Demar, yeah. Uh, yes, you know, or, started out like as a nobody yeah. character, and all of a sudden he became. By the end of it, he was the the president of Cardassia, or the the even like the admiral uh, played by Barry Jenner, the actor you know yep. who mm -hmm. you know, or uh, the all Martok. the Ferengi, you know, the, yeah, the Ferengi, played by, and, all the characters played by Jeffrey Wayun, <laughs> yeah, yeah, three of them. <laughs> Combs. Or Jeffrey yeah. Combs. I'm sorry, Jeffrey Combs, who played Wayun and Brunt, and another one, one I guy. didn't remember. Yeah, some other guy, but uh, and and in fact. That kind of bears on the next point, where they they kind of talk about how Michael Pillar, who was one of the the, the foundations for the series, he was with TNG. He's deceased mm -hmm. now, but he yep. really drove on the point that plots. He and his baseball cap are deceased. Yeah, yep. Yes, uh, the that pl the plot's only purpose for him was to reveal the character. This was a character driven show, and mm -hmm. the the plot served that, and which is, is very clear. I mean, so many of the best episodes were about revealing things about the people of, yeah. of Deep Space Nine. And that's one of the ways you do it is because because you can't have these Planet of the Week, you're you're exploring the people. Um and mm -hmm. that that's what's very interesting. And that's where we they then got into talking about each of the characters in turn. Uh they talked about Kira, who was, depending on your point of view, either a terrorist or a freedom fighter. And whether yep. you could have this do the character in the same way in the post 9/11 world we live in whether you could have a character who is clearly in some respects a, a terrorist in a this sympathetic in, terrorist basically a sympathetic she did things that were immoral she yeah. she collateral damage to people and they pretty much conclude you couldn't play Kira the same way post 9/11 that you could in the 90s right and it's fascinating that nevertheless she was still a, a, a not just a sympathetic character a favored character despite her history See, as a terrorist. I, I mean, obviously, they know better the the TV situation than I ever will. But I question that to some extent. Could mm -hmm. you portray a character today where it is a terrorist, but it, a terrorist of an oppressed nation that's clearly oppressed? I mean, it's not like uh, oh, well, we think we're oppressed because you could, but you would have to play it differently. I think that's the point: is you'd have to really explore the dark side and the justification for what she'd done. They, they didn't do a whole lot of that. They did some of that, but yeah, not, not, not to the extent that they probably would. And that would make it just as interesting a character, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So. No, they weren't saying you couldn't do Kira today. It's just it would have to be handled somewhat differently because today, I think one, I think post 9-11, for anyone who was alive and remembers old enough to remember 9-11 oh, yeah. and everything that followed it, you can't adopt a terrorist as a favorite character who you like and trust and want to win as easily anymore. Right. right. Because we True. didn't have no the agree. personal experience of terrorism hitting the homeland in the 90s when this show was on the air. So we could adopt Kira as a, oh, she's one of the goodies. We, we, we want her to win mm -hmm. right. as, as easily. Uh, there would now be more hesitance to embrace Kira today because it, it's a way yeah. she did what? And, right, and yeah. you want us to like this person? I mean, she was a religious terrorist in a sense. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. A, a fundamental. You know, 
not that she was motivated by religion. She was more motivated by freedom for her people. But, you know, that, that stuff came across. They talk about, speaking of Homeland, they talk about the TV series, the Showtime TV series Homeland, which had a terror, a, 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 an American who had turned and become a terrorist, Brody, and how he was sympathetic and stuff. But he was not like Kira. You did not want him to succeed. He was not the right. hero, clearly, but he was still sympathetic. And that's, the, that's a big difference. Um, they talk about Vic Fontaine, how important mm-hmm. that character, the holographic character, became to the series. Mm-hmm. Um, really, le- I think the Vic Fontaine and that Vegas vibe really lent a lot to the feel of the series in the last couple seasons, I think. Yeah. I think it became an indelible part of it. Um, and uh, Ira talks about how Vic Fontaine and James Darren, who plays him, there's not a lot of acting going on there, like we said before. Like th- That's pretty <laughs> much the same person. Yeah. Um, uh, incidentally, and they didn't really talk about it this time, but um, I mean, James Darren is known as a singer, and this mm-hmm. relaunched. He had kind of, I guess, been in retirement, but appearing as Vic Fontaine relaunched his singing career. Oh yeah, and he and he made a couple of albums where he does uh, the same songs. Many of them. Uh, one of them is kind of more Dean Martin oriented, and one of them is more Frank Sinatra oriented. Nice. But he covers these songs, and they're really great. He did them after yeah. Deep Space Nine as kind of, in part, I mean, commercially, but also as a as a thank you to the fans for bringing back this aspect of his career. Yeah. Um, one of them, I believe, is called This One's From The Heart, and it's really great to see to hear him sing, you know, uh, uh, Fly me all to the these moon. different, yeah. Fly Me to the Moon, and The Best Is Yet to Come, and Here's to the Losers, and all those songs. Uh, now I I love that music. That's just a part of me. So I I really love it. I don't know how other people feel, but what uh, I love is the warmth in his voice is mm-hmm. better than Frank Sinatra's, and yeah. I like hearing him sing Frank Sinatra songs better than I like hearing Frank Sinatra sing. Wow. Okay. Nice. All right. Well, this this episode's over. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's move on out of the controversy into uh, something less controversial. Let's talk about Nog and his evolution. They discuss his evolution mm-hmm. and from being the, the annoying uh, 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 juvenile delinquent into becoming right. a, a very mature character who has gone through so much. A and how wounded the, that, war vet. The wounded war vet. And, uh, and they talk about that too, but also how it somewhat mirrors Aaron Eisenberg's journey, who also... Um, had suffered uh, greatly in his own life, uh, personal life, with with health issues. Um, mm-hmm. But how that 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 evolved, that character evolved, and that's one of the great things about DS Nine is how so many of these characters, especially the secondary characters, evolved and became so deep, um, including yeah. Nog. Um, I found Nog to be really annoying in the early days, and I didn't like oh, him he was. when he was on. Yeah, yeah, he really turns a corner when he joins Starfleet. Yes, that's a big yeah. yeah a big shift. Um, that episode where he's doing his rehab on the holodeck with uh, yeah. Vic. Yeah, I mean, it's only just a, a great paper episode. moon. Yes. That one's great. Yeah, it is. Um, also, another character that they do talk about who evolved dramatically over the course of the show was, I mean, like Cisco. He got more confident and he got to be bald and have a goatee, but he's <laughs> really pretty much the same person at the end of the series he is at the beginning. He's maybe a little. He's he also is more chill with the fact that he's the Bajoran emissary at that point. Right. Right. Um, but in terms of dramatic developments as a character, uh, Odo has that. Yeah. Um, Nog has that, and Julian Bashir has that in a huge oh, yeah. way. Huge. Oh, yeah. Much bigger. Um, Speaking yeah. of annoying at the beginning. <laughs> yes, he was. You know, again, uh, on, had, having the hots for Dax, blah blah blah, and that's pretty much all he was. But by the end, he was this this complex character. They added the whole genetic manipulation story arc to him and um, having to be in, involved with Section 31 and just some of the more um, having to make certain choices and and deciding in a particular way to, 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 to double down on being a doctor. Yeah, I think Julian had a huge conversion. A lot of this has to do with their experience of the Dominion War, which was itself yep. controversial um, because. Again, people thought it was a betrayal of Roddenberry's vision of the utopian future, except starships have photon torpedoes and phasers on them. So yeah. someone and, imagined that there would be we, war. We clearly had references to wars, and we even had little two episode, one or two episode wars in the original series. Yeah. Right. 
it's nice to finally explore what a real war is like. One of, they were talking to uh, one of the producers who's, you know, it was like Gene Roddenberry said, Star Trek isn't about wars. And it's like, okay, you don't have a choice sometimes about whether you go to war or not. Mm-hmm. If you have Klingon or Romulan or other empires on your border, they may be the ones who start the war. Right, exactly. Uh, and again, yeah, like you mentioned, we had several of those in the original series. They, I like when they brought in the veterans to talk about how Deep Space Nine dealt with the topic of the war's effect on people. The the yeah. war, the Dominion War, is not a glorious war of victory. Um, they really explore the the cost of war in many yep. episodes, um, yep. and I thought that was really well done. Uh, this they, when they talk about the siege of AR five five two, I think it is called. Uh, in that episode, and that was a really well done exploration of the idea of it was essentially like um, uh, imagining a futuristic version of a Vietnamese, a Vietnam era uh, firebase under assault by yep. you know the Viet Cong, you know, or the Vietnamese North Vietnamese Army. I mean, that was really that imagination in that. It was really a well done, and I like that they brought in the veterans to talk about how the series, how so many military veterans love it. There's a great line on this that that's so true. Uh, you know, for those those of us who have served, you know, when we were serving, is we don't want a commanding officer who's your friend. We want a seal who will keep you alive. You're right. And yes. they talk and, about yeah. that. Yeah. Yes, they do talk about that, and they talk. And then the uh, Aaron Eisenberg talks about veterans who've been wounded, and we talked about this just a second ago. Wounded war vets who yep. would who told him how much they appreciated his portrayal of Nog, who who himself was wounded and, and you know had mm-hmm. an amputation. And how much that meant to them. So I, I really appreciate that they brought that out. Uh, they then talk about the Cisco-Jake relationship um, mm-hmm. and how it was so good to have on TV uh, this role model of a black father raising his son um, in, 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 in this way where so many young black men don't necessarily have their father in their life in a loving way. This was I've said this before. One of my favorite parts of Deep Space Nine is this relationship, the father clearly loves his son and shows him that and is a good father to his son. Uh, so I like that part of it. Then uh, they talk about the Benny Russell character where Cisco has these visions given to him by the prophets where he now he thinks he's a Pulp Fiction writer in the nineteen mm-hmm. early 1960s, late 50s, I think it was, that time period. The episode was far beyond the stars. And they talk about how when he acted in this episode and, he, and Benny has this breakdown at the end, how... Uh, Avery Brooks were, you know, kind of descended into this moment and didn't come up out of it. And not a visitor says that uh, Avery Brooks would tell her that you look for those moments in a scene when God shows up. And and what he means by that is like it's it's scary and wonderful and mysterious, and it's beyond your acting. It's something else is going on beyond your own ability. I thought that was a very interesting insight into acting and and this sort of thing. They talk about the controversial addition of Worf in late seasons. That some of the actors feel like, oh, like we're not good enough. We have to take you know TNG's leftovers, leavings. uh, When now that TNG's off the air, they they think we need this boost of TNG viewers, which they did because especially at the time serialized shows had trouble attracting audiences and bringing in a favorite character from Next Gen is a good business move. And yes. It's interesting. The different actors had different takes on that. Some were more threatened, like uh, Nana Visitor thought, "Oh, he's going to be Captain Cisco's new second now, and I'm going to be reduced to getting coffee for them." Whereas right. Colomini was like, "Oh, great! I've worked with him before. That's awesome." Right, and Terry Farrell was excited because uh, that opened up her character. Uh, yeah, as, right. As they called her, Action Barbie. <laughs> where uh, <laughs> she got to do a lot more action as Worf's uh, love interest. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and it really opened up for her. And then they kind of go into her situation, her departure, controversial mm. departure. She started on Deep Space Nine as a 20-year-old who really didn't know anything. It was really her, her first acting job, I think, that they, they imply. I'm not sure if that's true, but... I don't think it was her first acting job. I thought there was a movie she had been in where she okay. was kind of, you know, teenage love interest type. But she's rel- relatively new to the business. And somewhat intimidated by the other actors around her. I can imagine being intimidated by Avery Brooks. Um, uh, and then yeah. By, 
And then by the, I think it's by the sixth season, they're negotiating, or by the end of the fifth season, they're negotiating for the sixth and seventh. And right. uh, it, they, it was the end of the sixth season, and she said that uh, several of the actors were given a take it or leave it deal, and she wanted to negotiate that, but she ended up leaving it. Right. right. And felt bad that they didn't want to be in communication, didn't want to negotiate with her. Right. Well, and it sounded like, too, as there were certain parts of the production crew that were trying to push certain characters out, and she right. was one of them. Right. It, I have to respect the documentary here, again, like Ira Bear and the others, and not like papering over this and sort of you know pretending that there was nothing wrong here. They, they, they address it. Now, we don't get to the root of it, obviously. There's different viewpoints. Different people have different memories of what have what happened. So, and I think Michael Dorn, in fact, kind of says mm-hmm. that explicitly. Yeah, you know, we'll never know exactly. You know, there's different different people have different ways of saying it. Uh, but it's interesting, uh, and 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 they kind of address like, yeah, we lost Terry Farrell, who was really good in that role, but then we got Esri, which was a really good character for that final season. Yeah, yeah Esri is really good. I really like Esri. I mean, I love Jadzia. But I yes. also really like Esri. Yes, and uh, the way they talk about like her coming in to an established role, kind of taking over, but being the same character but being different. I'm thinking that's just like a Doctor Who regeneration. Yep. Yeah. It, I mean, that's essentially what happens: is she's the same person, but she's different now. And so, how does right. how does she fit in? And they really did a great job of exploring that. And she probably had the quickest evolution of a character because she changed a lot in that first that one season too i mean right yeah. much more confident by the end of it if, yeah. if only big finish would do the further adventures of jadzia dax <laughs> yes the, the adventures <laughs> of dax that would be fun uh go back do the uh the uh, the uh, previous hosts as well um yeah so then they talk about the evolution of julian Bashir. we talked about that already uh and then we have this uh section near the end where they talk about how deep space nine addressed uh, various social issues. Of course, like the war and the cost of war. We already talked about that. How they addressed religion in, in that. Um, then they get into the LGBT issues and how uh, the Dax, the episode where Dax, Jadzia, kisses uh, another woman because their previous hosts were, were lover, you know, paramours. Uh, and she, it's this quote. It's the first time I saw two people who loved each other not because of their sexual identity, but because they loved each other. And I'm like, hold on. The problem is that you're equating erotic or romantic love with all love. There are plenty of examples of people who love each other who can love each other not because of their sexual identity, but because they love each other. There's lots of examples of that everywhere. And I just felt like that that showed a um, a narrow view, sort of. And I, I, didn't, I, I didn't appreciate that viewpoint as much uh, as other stuff. So, um and then they they talk about the what I call the J.K. Rowling move, moment where they uh, decide that Garrick was uh, was homosexual all along, and that that just never mind the the heterosexual relationship he had with Ducat's daughter. But anyways, yes, and and Julian's you know pining after Jadzia, you know, and then Esri. So yeah, it's just it's silly, silly backwards um, imposing um, your your current day attitudes on the, the previous time. Um, they do talk a little bit about Garrick in this, about um, how he's so popular among fans, uh, why he's so popular. Um, some of that has to do with Andrew Robinson's portrayal. I mean, Andrew Robinson, again, is a, a brilliant portrayal, um, full of both humor, but also mystery. And uh, he's a little bit sinister, but he's a little bit your friend, and you're not quite sure what to make of him. And he kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat the whole time. I think it's one of the reasons people like Garrick so much. Um, I'll agree. And, yeah. And then uh, they talk about the, the how they addressed homelessness in uh, past tense one and two, which again I thought you can't really equate that with current day I- issues of homelessness. Yeah, and not here in America. I mean, maybe Venezuela or something. Right. Um, right. The the it also I thought those were some of the less least successful Deep Space Nine episodes. Yeah. Because it's too on the nose. It's like, okay, I'm going to be preached at for a couple of episodes about the homelessness problem, and this is right. no longer storytelling. This is a sermon. Right, right, right. Well, they, and they, of, course, yeah. of course, they show you know, current day 
news reports about some of the serious homelessness problems in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles and places like that. And, you know, that that's not going to lead to the sanctuary city area. Oh, actually, that's kind of ironic because those are sanctuary cities as far as yeah. immigration yeah. are concerned. But these sanctuary districts, they call it. Yeah. And so. a lot of the problems there are being I mean, this is a personal political opinion, but I've been to San Francisco and a lot of the problems there are fed by the irresponsible policies of the San Francisco City Council. Just right. like back in the 70s, New York was a big mess and it got cleaned up and San Francisco could get cleaned up and give these people a better quality of life who are currently living on the streets in squalor and mm -hmm. literal human excrement. Right. That's And so that's, as we wrap up, one of the criticisms of this documentary that from a, a number of people who watched it was that it got way too contemporary political at the end. He brought up, you know, right. contemporary. I don't want to get into the politics uh, too too much, just because it feels I feel it's a distraction, and there's plenty of politics to talk about everywhere else. But that it did get political, and it's, it felt like, well, what you know, like Deep Space Nine addressed politics and addressed so, somewhat concepts of like the bigger issues, philosophical questions about po political relationships. But this got very much contemporary, current event political issues. and They're I, even showing footage of President Trump in passing. Yes. Right. Yeah, it just, it just got, and it got very partisan. It was a very particular viewpoint uh, being expressed. And I felt like that, that undermined the, the broad appeal of the documentary and of the series itself. And, and yeah. I think that's unfortunate. Yeah, we can be inclusive. Remember that concept? <laughs> Maybe you exactly. want to include more than one political perspective. <laughs> exactly. So, um, and then roll credits. And Jimmy, you mentioned before about how there was some uh, mid credits scenes and so, and a post credit scene. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think as you said uh, before before we started recording, it reminded me that at the end they they said um, Iris they, says, "Oh, we forgot to bring up Iggy Pop." Iggy yeah, Pop, and that yeah. Pro prompts Nana Visitor to come out and debate with him about all the things they should have mentioned in the documentary that they left out, and and he. Um, uh, he he says, well, you know, I mean, we had to make hard choices. This is it would have been eight hours long at least if we went through every episode. And she says, yeah, but you you left out the 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 greatest moment in Deep Space Nine history. And he says, what do you mean? And she whispers it to him, and she he says, oh, yeah, she has a point. Roll the greatest moment in Deep Space Nine history. So, any any final uh, thoughts on the what we left behind documentary, uh, Father Corey? I just want to reiterate again. You know, if if the remastered footage that they showed in this is any sign of what it will look like if they do the whole series, come on, Paramount, get it done. <laughs> CBS, whoever owns it, get it done. Yes. I like the description of it as film noir in space. I think that was a great description of what the series was about. Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of got a kick out of it. There's the one, one uh, picture of Michael Pilar when he was actually, when he was working on the series, in the back behind him is an old IBM PC with the, <laughs> a bunch of floppy disks sitting there. It's like, yeah, that's the early 90s. That's yep. about right. And then the story I'd heard before, you know, there's that, that episode of the, the Siege episode where Bill Mummy, who had played yep. Will Robinson, Mummy. was in. Yep. And, of course, at the end of scening, Ira, filming, Ira Stephen Bear goes down, and it's official, Star Trek has killed Will Robinson. <laughs> yes. Uh, there was a uh, the elephant in the room that did not get mentioned, by the way, in that uh, discussion is... The fact that he uh, was on Babylon 5 at the same time? Yes, that did not get mentioned. I thought it was interesting. Uh, Jimmy, do you have uh, any final thoughts? Nope, that's it for me. Awesome. All right, so... Before we uh, take our leave, we'll take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including John M., Jerry M., Luis M., Craig B., and Peter D. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. What did you think of this Deep Space Nine documentary called What We Left Behind? You can, not only is it available on DVD, it's available on streaming, so you can you can check yes. it out online. Uh, let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek. 
or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia, or send us an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Next Generation episode, Code of Honor. Get that to look forward to. Mm -hmm. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Tom. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, the greatest moment in Deep Space Nine history, Alan Moraine jumped three steps. <laughs> I can't do the rest. <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. Alamorain, count to four. Alamorain, count to four. Alamorain, if you can see. Alamorain, if you can see. Alamorain, you'll come with me.